everyone. I'm Melody Maraca. And I'm Bill C. Welcome back to the Into the Heart of YouTube podcast, where two longtime fans discuss YouTube music album by album and tour by tour, the fan experience, and the perception of YouTube and cultural consciousness. Yeah, and I can't imagine you haven't already, but if you haven't, take a listen to our manifesto episode to give you a better idea why Melody and I are doing this. But in short, we care about this band and we're concerned about their legacy. And as we sit here in 2023, we figured it's time to take a deep dive into the U2 catalog and get to the bottom of where this band belongs historically. Are they one of the greats of all time? Or are the haters right after all? So, Melody. Yes, Bill. This is our first episode. We're really doing this. We are really doing this. I'm very excited. I know. And we've come a long way from all those nights at Cantor's yelling at and over each other about this band. Well, Bill, you did most of the yelling. I was completely rational and correct most of the time. Well, as we all know, the one who's loudest is right. (laughs) Isn't that what we've learned in the last few years on social media? (laughs) Anyway, so for this inaugural episode, it says here, I'm going to read it. We'll be going through the U2's early demos and singles and the lead up to and making of the debut album, Boy, and talk about what the musical and cultural landscape was at the time. That's Melody's department. She's very well with that. I think you'll enjoy that. Um, the the boy tour and what the band's stature was moving forward. I mean, is that true? We're doing all this, Melody? I think we are doing all of it. Well, I'm excited. So uh, where does it all start? Well, you two fans know the story, right? Yeah. Larry Mullen puts up a notice on the bulletin board at Mount Temple Comprehensive, looking for other musicians to join him in forming a band. And then... On that great day, September 25th, 1976, a bunch of Dublin Northside teenagers with little to no musical experience gather in Larry's parents' kitchen with rock and roll dreams in tow. Indeed. So let's take a moment and let's look outside of Larry's kitchen window. (laughs) A bit Um, gray out there, Melody. (laughs) (laughs) A little misty, too. Yes. Um, Dublin in the 1970s, right? Yeah. It's a time of great upheaval and change. I think you can very easily visualize the troubles of Northern Ireland was a constant backdrop on the evening news. It probably seeped into everything in daily life, um, particularly with violence occasionally spilling over into Dublin itself. And then Ireland, um, like the rest of the world, was in the throes of a global economic recession at that time. Um, It was caused by a couple of oil crises that resulted in economic jitters and very long lines at the petrol pump, which I remember that here in the States. No doubt. uh, Even our odd license plates, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) No idea how they did that in Dublin, figured out who went on what day. Yeah, really. Um, I think another thing too that's very important um, to mention about Ireland at this time is it's an incredibly conservative place. Yeah. Uh, for example, um, both contraceptives and divorce were outlawed at the time. Yeah. Um, another interesting bit: um, it, it was not until 1973 um, that women could stay uh, in their jobs in certain sectors after they'd been married, which I find can be completely mind blowing. <laughs> yes. Um, so um, another thing of yes. interest here is 50% of the country at this time are under the age of 26. Can you imagine 50% Huge. under the age yeah. of 26? No, that's, so that's place, big. 
Yeah. So the place had to be ripe for youth driven explosion um, of growth and change. So I'll stop the history lesson now. No. Let's go back to you two. Yes. Um, after meeting in 1976, the story goes mostly dark for the next couple of years while the band learns how to play, sort of. Sort of. Sort of, and releases <laughs> their first demos. Yeah. And I, I, I think what's abundantly clear from listening to these early demos, and both you and I have been doing that the past week in uh, preparation for this podcast, is, um, you know, you got... You got poor Larry. He's 16 and the poor guy, he can't keep time. Adam can barely play. And Bono, well, Bono is basically a mimic at this point, consumed by his many influences. You got Joey Ramone, you got Susie Sue, you got Iggy, you got Bowie. I could go on. Uh, And only Edge possesses a hint of any kind of mastery of his instrument or any musical identity. Well, I don't know if it's quite accurate to say only Edge has something going on. I mean, clearly, Adam and Larry, they have yet to learn to really play, but interesting bass parts do abound, you know? I mean, it's true. Adam, he does come up with some good parts. The poor guy just can't pull it off yet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. And then let's let's take Larry, for example, too. I mean, his playing, it is simplistic, and it serves only to move the songs forward, but I really think that's all those songs needed at that point, you know? Yeah. And listen, there's one other thing I wanted to bring up and forgive the tangent, but you know, as I was driving over, see what you think. <laughs> I I think there's two reasons why U2 survives the frustrating first couple of years where, I mean, let's be honest, there's very little tangible evidence this thing is working. And I think the first thing is an undeniable friendship is formed and it, it clearly it goes way deeper and beyond sharing the rock and roll dream. It's it's this classic us versus them bond. And it's very Irish. And it's like, it's either the four of us together forever or not at all. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that it's remembered, I think it's important to look back and remember that that friendship really wasn't typical. I mean, back in 1976, Bono and Adam are 16 and Larry is 14, which, you know, it's a massive gulf at that stage of life. No right? question, yes. Um, I mean, maybe maybe it was Bono taking Larry under his wing after Larry's mother passed away, which was certainly uh, an amazing experience that the two of them shared um, that develops this incredible bond that they have. Uh, no question. I, that can't be overstated. Um, also, when you take into account, Adam doesn't seem to have anything that he fits into. Mm-hmm. He's this oddball. and he finally finds somewhere where he does fit. So maybe these guys become his life preservers. Yeah, no, I agree with that. But before we get too far into our couch psychology, Bill, um, you said earlier on that there were two reasons why U2 survives. Um, What was the second one? Yeah, um, I think the other thing that's notable is they're chasing said dream in Dublin, Ireland. And I think it's fair to say in a more cutthroat or careerist city like London or New York or LA, the band's ties that bind, so to speak, wouldn't have survived. And I think anywhere else, either Edge himself or Paul McGuinness or some other shyster would have tried to grab the good bits and cut bait, Mm. but not with these four and not in Dublin. Right. And, you know, you have to say if, if Edge had left at that point, it would have been over. Um, oh, I don't absolutely. think it really can be overstated that without Edge, 
there is no U2 at this stage. I couldn't agree more. And um, yeah, I mean, in the case of Adam and Larry, it's about their friends' faith and their potential. But in the case of Bono, it's something a little more. Because what we learn along the way from a multitude of sources, time and time again, is Bono, from the very beginning, has something you're either born with or it's not there at all. And it's this it factor. Mm -hmm. It's the power to commandeer a stage and demand attention. And because of this, the band recognizes the value of being patient with him until he learns how to sing and find his identity. <laughs> but the problem is, it's that intangible gift of his. It's impossible to detect on these early demos. But thankfully, they have edge. And that's who's keeping hope alive. <laughs> So in 1979, U2 lands an Ireland-only recording contract with CBS Records, which they landed in part due to winning a talent show at a St. Patrick's Day gig in Limerick. How's that for being Irish, right? Lucky charms. <laughs> okay. Um, after a few false starts at the studio, they finally get to record the EP U23, um, which has songs with good bones on it, certainly. Um, Out of Control is on there, Stories for Boys, which, mm -hmm. of course, eventually make it onto the boy album. Right. The EP, it does well in Ireland, but in my opinion, it doesn't sound that great. It sounds pretty compressed. It's rushed. Okay, that all said, you two at that stage, at this stage, they've gained a loyal following. They also have a ton of publicity at home. Um, they, along with Paul McGinnis, have set their sights on an international record deal. Right. Uh, yeah. And that's all very well, but it's not happening. And honestly, things are getting dire. See, the band had just got back from gigs in London, which were funded by all their parents, loaning them 500 pounds each to try and get signed. But it doesn't happen. So as 1979 turns into 1980s, their options are running out. So on February 26, 1980, they play their now legendary gig at the National Stadium in Dublin which was essentially a put-on, a desperate kind of last-ditch effort to stage a triumphant gig at this big venue to make it look like they were this massive success, when in reality, they've been turned down by every label and they had nowhere else to turn. I got to stop you. I always thought that they really did this, that they really sold the 2,000 seats at the National Stadium. I didn't find out until much later. The whole thing was big put on, and they maybe sold 500 seats. And I think you were telling me earlier that most of those were giveaways. I just think I, I love the balls, basically. Totally. But the thing that's funny about the whole thing is it miraculously worked. Uh, the bluff worked. They actually did get signed to Island Records. Um, but I want to take a minute and talk about that that gig, that National Stadium gig. Um, Melody, I know that you and I have long had the bootleg of that gig. Yep. And when you look at that set list and you listen to that show and you juxtapose it with what ended up on Boy, Amir, I mean, just eight months later, uh, and that's just when it was released. So it's just like five months later they recorded Boy. Um, it's nothing short of miraculous because gone are all the kind of rigid, um, stick up the ass stuff like, you know, like Cartoon World. And 
all of a sudden, you know, there's I Will Follow, there's Uncut Dub, there's Into the Heart, there's The Ocean, there's Electrico. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you two emerges with, you know, obviously with the help of Steve Lillywhite, which we'll get to in a minute, but with a rare kind of power and confidence and clear vision of what they are. I mean, to me, it's almost like literally Robert Johnson at the crossroads, like they'd made a deal with the devil for musical powers they'd never possessed before or even hinted at. No, it's very, it's all very true. But just right before we get to boy, I wanted to talk about U2's first recording for Island Records, um, which is 11 o'clock TikTok. Right. Um, this one it was recorded in May of 1980 and produced by Martin Hannett, um, which I've always thought was quite amazing, right? Because here you have U2, they're just signed. And what an amazing high it must have been to get to do your first major recording for a major label. And you're doing it with a producer of one of your favorite bands, Joy Division. Yeah, right? well, for sure. Um, but Hannett's mad genius approach, it didn't jive well with the band, and it seemed that nobody was happy with this working relationship. A lot of people think Ian Curtis, had he not killed himself in May 1980, which sent, you know, Hannett into despair, he would have been the producer of Boy. But I'd argue the band realized Hannett wasn't a good fit. And I think it's like this crazy prescient bit of self-awareness that they had that realization, no matter how uh, how much of a fantasy it was to for their dream producer to produce them, that the fact that they realized this at this age, 19 years old, 20 years old, and they understood it was important to pivot away from that toward a guy called Steve Lillywhite, who they were familiar with from his work from Susie and XTC and Peter Gabriel. Yeah, just a little bit of background on Steve Lillywhite. Um, he was a staff producer at Island Records, and by some accounts, he initially passed on working with U2 um, when he heard the demos. Um, but he changed his mind when he saw them live, and I'm certainly glad he did. Mm -hmm. um, the record that the collaboration yielded is, I think, one of the best debuts in rock and roll. I couldn't agree more. Um, now, the thing is, it wasn't easy, though, because if you believe Lily White's production team, Larry couldn't keep time to save his life, as we've covered before. And uh, Apparently, a lot of the drum tracks are either composites from different takes or early ad hoc versions of what we now call loops created to flesh out or complete the backing tracks. And supposedly, Lily White was also not very impressed with poor Adam and had to teach him uh, a lot of his bass parts that actually work because a lot of what we came in with to the sessions wasn't meshing. Then we have Bono. He's still messing about with the lyrics, something that will dog him for the next several records. But fortunately, again, we come back to the same thing we've been saying. They have a guy called Edge, who by the end of Boy emerges as a new kind of guitar hero, anti-hero, a master of minimalism. So credit Lily White's shimmering production on Boy, but let's also credit this baby band for exhibiting... I'd call like a, a steely vision way beyond its years that ran completely against the grain of what was happening on the pop charts. 
And from the opening riff of I Will Follow to the last strains of Shadows and Tall Trees, Boy is Nothing Short of a Revelation. It's an intimate record. It's about inter- the internal world of adolescence with all its yearning and frailties, a world where the innocence of childhood experiences the bruising tastes of adulthood. It's an earnest, naked album, but it's also one filled with exuberance and a lot of pop sensibilities. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, it's funny. It's like, the truth is like early U2, I don't focus in on the lyrics per se, like as poetry um, that would come, you know, maybe with uh, Unforgettable Fire. But um, it is, this Boy is a concept album of sorts, um, but not, you know, not in a classic way, but it is universally relatable and lyrically thematic. And better yet, it's not just a coming of age story, so to speak, you know, using the tried and true, but it does zero in on those moments in the twilight, the tug of war going on, straddling the passageway between adolescence and adulthood. And it's a record that the band not only love and are clearly proud of, but it's a sound and like this, it's it's this treasure trove of themes that they will not only go back to at various times, but indelibly so right up to this very moment. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. So Boy is released on October 20th, 1980 in Ireland and the UK. And on March 3rd, 1981 in the United States. Yeah. So let's get down to it. Um, You drop the needle down and you get that now iconic count off to I Will Follow. Let's listen. So the words that come to mind, exuberant, urgent. When you think about that opening riff, it reminds me, I know a lot of people have said this, but it's true. It reminds me of a clarion call. It, it kind of, I don't know, it sounds like the mixture of bells and horns. There's And there's also just something really fun and disarming about this song, the production. Um, I'm talking about the sounds of smashing bottles. You've got the glockenspiel. Um, it's just, it's exciting. It's really exciting. What about you, Bill? What are your first impressions of the song? Uh, on my little notes, I have Clarion Call too. So <laughs> great minds think alike. <laughs> right, right. I mean, yeah. I, listen, this is not just the lead track on U2's debut. It's like it's an opening salvo. It's a it is a Clarion Call. It is a statement of purpose for this baby band. And I mean, what a monolithic leap it is. You know, you know, it's, it's a riff for the ages. You know, this is what Bono will come to call ecstatic music. Um, uh, you know, it, it's um, it's it's you two with their first big feeling, their first the big turn of phrase that has many meanings. Um, you know, if you walk away, walk away, I will follow. You don't have to know that Bono's mother died to know this is likely, I would say likely, uh, about unconditional love of a mother. It could be God's love. It could be for the heathens among us, you know, uh, you know, a vow between lovers, um, whatever. I will follow is literally the first of many times Bono will revisit his mother's uh, death and grapple with her love. Uh, there's tomorrow. There's lemon. There's mofo. There's iris, uh, among others. 
Uh, and by the way, I, this is crazy because I only just like literally I've listened to this song a million times since I, my early teens. And I literally never knew. Somebody said, did you realize the middle part, your eyes make a circle? That's an allusion to Iris, his mother, Iris, and the eye, Iris. Uh, mind blown, if that's true. I have I've never heard that. Never even thought about that. That's pretty wild. Um, if that's true, I mean, you know, there's the power of the subconscious. Um, that's really wild. Hmm. Oh, Interesting hey, theory, but breaking news for, uh, the, uh, into the heart podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting though, lyrically, Yeah, I would never certainly, um, this transcendent love, somebody that believes in love so much that they will follow it, which is really an interesting introductory statement, right? I'm going to follow. It's kind of powerful. It kind of goes along with Bono's whole theme that develops later of surrender, but that's getting ahead of myself. Yeah. But if you're just looking at the lyrics, what I've always felt, and I, I feel about a lot of the boy album, is they just, they're just images. They're just painting those feelings, the painting feeling of love, of yearning in this case, of self-doubt even and then of healing you know yeah yeah um you know and the funny thing is bono he, he's not the star here on boy that'll come on the tour but he seriously sounds assured finally like literally like i said like a a a, a switch of a light he's right. he's from national stadium we're talking about you know where his you know where his, his, his impressions of other singers are abound and now here he is. He's got his own voice. He's entirely in his element. He's not quite there yet, but he certainly sounds assured. And this is the, the singer of you too. Yeah, yeah. And the affectations—they're um, not entirely gone. Right. But most of them have been diminished. Yeah. Um, which I think really does allow him to become his own entity. And I think that's a great tr transition because he sounded so bad on the <laughs> demo to Twilight. Whereas on Twilight, our next song. He's again, it's his made a massive leap forward. Ah, yes, Twilight. Um, it's, I guess, it's the little song that could, in a way. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, you can hear the history of the song, which I think makes this song so interesting. You first hear it um, from a, a really bad demo, 1978. And then it's also on the B side of one of U2's um, earliest singles, I think, is when they're still on CBS Another Day. Mm -hmm. um, and both of those versions, I mean, you know, <laughs> I want to be a little kind because I do love this song, but they're pretty much they're poorly played baskets, baskets of interesting ideas. And that's kind yeah. of all they are. Then, and then on this album, it goes, it becomes this majestic, trippy saga of a song that yeah. reveals this haunted journey from childhood to young adulthood and that liminal place um, uh, that you can exist in when yeah. you are making that transition. I, and yeah. the transformation is incredible. Now, 
I kind of had was pushing you to kind of get into the Lipton Village gang and Lord of the Flies, and you kind of you know begged off it. But I I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> reengage because I I think this is the spot for it. Um, you know, for for those who don't know, you know, the Lipton Village gang is primarily consisting of Bono's friends from his neighborhood. You got, you know, these luminaries from that you hear if you pay any attention to you two. You got your Gavin Fridays and Gigi and Pod uh, and that lot. And they were all kind of like for a time into this belief in the purity of, you know, the child's eye view and the, you know, the world of, uh, you know, to re the rejection of adulthood. Uh, because I think because once you cross over into adulthood, um, it would be nothing but a lifetime of compromise. And I think that's what that's the fascination for me of this record in the song. That's that's the extra sauce that you don't quite understand you're going to get. Um, and uh, and again, like as you said, like if if you're paying attention, who would have expected this song to be this epic? Right. Uh, and, and And especially as it grows through the October tour and then particularly on the war tour where it's just massive right, uh, and, and spiritual. And I think, you know, certainly you can tell that very easily in the music, how much it develops and grows, but even the lyrics, because the lyrics were rewritten from the demo version. If you're just looking just at that first verse, yeah. right? So the original version is I look into your eyes to find you in disguise forever and a day has just become today. it's not terrible but then it becomes i look into his eyes they're closed but i see something a teacher told me why i laugh when old men cry I mean, it's okay. So who I was going to ask you. So yeah. who do you think the old man is? I don't know. I don't know who the old man is. Um, I don't think I really need to know who the old man is. But could um, it be? But could it be Iris's dad, who also died right then? She was at the funeral of his grandfather. I mean, it's possible. I mean, or, or is it a child's yearning for wisdom from an elder? Right. Or is it? you know, something about, um, what happens to you in adulthood. Um, okay. That also know. works. I, I mean, it could be a lot of different things, but I mean, that's it. It becomes very evocative. Um, it becomes something that you can ponder. Um, there's just an amazing maturation to the entire lyric and it, okay. it just becomes something that you can kind of get into and start to think all sorts of different theories behind. Okay. So, uh, let's not ignore the elephant in the room. I mean, a lot of people think uh, this song touches upon a sexual encounter. What kind of credence do you put in this? I mean, certainly when I first listened to the song, that was the impression that I got. Um, you know, I, I think if you look at the next verse, right? Um, 
Bono sings, my body grows and grows. It frightens me, you know. The old man tried to walk me home. I thought he should have known. So, I, I mean, yeah, it certainly sounded like a sexual encounter to me. And I think that also this gives reason why particularly in the United States, the the gay community were one of the first to really welcome you to um, because they thought that there were a lot of themes on the album, um, uh, gay themes on the album. And you two had said later that there was, I, I believe the, the, the words that they used was there was a misunderstanding about that, but I don't, I don't know how else you look at these lyrics. I don't know how else you can interpret those lyrics, particularly then it follows in the shadow boy meets man. It is evocative. And I do think it's sexual. What do you think, Bill? Um, I think it's kind of cool, actually. I, I think it's, it's cool. If that was a expressly in, intentional idea, I think it's kind of cool, actually. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, when you think about it, you know, like we were, you were talking earlier about 50% of the country is 26 or younger. And, you know, there's a, a, a an obvious uh, age divide, you know, older Dublin, younger Dublin. I think that's kind of an interesting mm. concept, you know, that might have been going on. I, just a thought. Yeah. But I mean, but there does seem to be this uh, ambivalence about sexuality, um, anxiety about sexuality that that flows through the record. And certainly if you look at the next song uncut dub i think that that's definitely (laughs) on display there and i think you kind of have to talk about uncut dub and into the heart together Let me just let me just say this. This for me might be my favorite piece on the album. Um, I'm not saying it's the best song, but I think the record would suffer terribly if it was not there. I think it provides a incredible um, and wonderful dark otherness um, mm-hmm. that juxtaposes against like the largely the splashes of light that's you know at least musically on the rest of the record. This is an edge tour de force. I mean, it's like a guitar orchestra. It's mm-hmm. I freaking love this song. Yeah. I love everything about it. it. Another song that just kept uh, evolving right through October and and through the war tour. Um, it's interesting that they brought it back later on Vertigo. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's very telling. Um, you know, credit S- Steve Lillywhite for creating you know a wonderful atmosphere. But again, Edge is so majestic; it's haunting. Yeah. Um, this really would have been a different record without this piece. Yeah, I agree with you. I think particularly in that bridge portion between the two songs, you know, yeah. I, I with Edge's playing very restrained playing, yeah. and the celebration of the spaces between the notes. You know, um, right. I think it is the emotional core of the album. Uh, yes, I just absolutely worship the song. I have nothing bad to say about it. It it is a song that keeps giving and giving and giving. I, I cannot solve it in a wonderful way. <laughs> yeah. um, and we haven't even touched on the lyrics. Um, right, right. So yeah, and I mean, I, I think having said that, lyrically, again, this 
this is really to the heart of the record's theme, the loss of innocence, right? right. Um, and the anxiety about that. And here it's displayed in this sort of anxiousness about sex, um, which from my interpretation, the singer is um, the prey <laughs> of the black cat. Um, we were talking about this before that Bono has tried to change that story. Yes. Um, that he <laughs> was the cat. Um, yes. But I don't, I don't see how you can possibly get that from the song but you know no I, um, it, and isn't it true that it has come out he, he kind of copped to the fact that bono and and ali were on a break and this is this is pretty first person right you know yeah, yeah. i mean not at the time but like i think he's kind of hinted that it was this did happen and you know and you, you kind of look at like bono was if this was a movie he's like that guy you know it's like <laughs> who becomes suddenly he is prey he by virtue of being in a band like suddenly it's it's an overwhelming concept of being suddenly ah this is a lot you know and uh you know out of his depth you know is, is my read on it in a way yeah sure and i think that it, it's if you're looking at it from the classic um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, nothing could be further <laughs> from, from this to this song. I mean, it's it's the absolute right. antithesis of the machismo description of sex. There's a real uncomfortableness to the story yes. uh, that I find intriguing. Yes. And then, of course, the resolution is wanting to go back into the heart of the child to go back into this world of innocence which of course you can't do um but but that's where the singer wants to be i, I find it really interesting so yeah it's just uh like i said it's just a freaking unbelievable song i'm so glad it's part of it because i i think it would have been a just an incredible emptiness and a part of the color spectrum that mm -hmm. would not be represented no, I agree. I agree. And I, I think I agree with you that it shares that dark space um, along with um, uh, Another Time, Another Place. I think that's the other, which we'll mm. get to in a little bit. But I think these are the two songs that sort of um, illustrate that dark space when one loses innocence and surrenders to experience. Mm. You know? Yeah, um, yeah. well, well said. And then we have Out of Control, which um, I think you know, certainly serves to pick the tempo back up yeah. from Into the Heart. Um, right. I think the song is the perfect bookend to side one with I Will Follow, which I think it shares a lot of um, uh, characteristics with. Um, certainly, you know, you have this really upbeat song. You have those breakdowns in the middle, um, which probably made people leave the dance floor in droves on both of the songs. Mm -hmm. Um, but I've always loved the song. I, I think that it's, again, the word exuberant, you would certainly use it's, uh, lyrically the perfect depiction. Bono tells the story so well, and he has told the story so well about writing it on his 18th birthday. Um, you're, you can be in his bedroom with him when he's certainly when he was writing the song, I feel it feels so immediate to me. Yeah. I mean, this is probably his first, what you'd call linear statement song. 
um, you know, a lot of kind of like splashes of colors and imagery, you know, here and there on the early stuff. This is this is what I would call his first kind of like cogent statement song. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the 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 one I love is boys and girls go to school and girls they make children, not like this one. <laughs> I mean, that's great. I mean, he's obviously talking about himself. I mean, like there's right. a, it's just a wonderful kind of um, a, a tolerable arrogance to that, um, <laughs> that, that is also on display on the ocean. Um, you know, thought yeah, the world yeah. could go far if they would listen to what I say. That's what right. we do. I mean, come on, like right. this isn't the, this isn't the annoying Bono that people hate. This is the one literally that we're all like this. We all think <laughs> every moment is crucial and yeah. massive. Like this sure. is, this is a snapshot literally of uh, that moment. And, and, and it's a series of those moments that are so relatable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, if you're looking at the lyrics again, it also in a different sort of way, <clears throat> is looking at those worlds of innocence and experience, I, I guess you'd have to say. At the very end, he says, you know, one day I'll die. The choice will not be mine. Will it be too late? You can't fight fate. His aha moment is the two biggest moments of your life are beyond your control. You're right, out of exactly. control. You're right. born, you die. And right. and I also love the one where what's the what's the um what's the the line somewhere in the middle about uh it's clearly it's like it's a psychologist looking at him. Like do you, do you know what I'm talking about? No, which line are you talking about? So we had to stop this episode so we could look it up. Melody, what's the line I was trying to think Okay, about? so the line here is, I fought fate, there's blood at the garden gate. The man said childhood, it's in his childhood. So that's for, so okay, thank you, appreciate it. But to me, that's like, it, he's talking to a psychologist and the psychologist, it's like that classic thing, oh, it's in your childhood. Which I, <laughs> you know, being a Quadrophenia fan, like I, that, that is what connected me to that. I don't even right. know if that's right, but... Anyway, um, that that's, sounds good. <laughs> yeah, it does sound good. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's pretty heavy, heady stuff for a baby band, right? <laughs> it is. It is. But, you know, again, there's that sort of uh, pop punk aesthetic. Gosh, that's that's almost a terrible thing. But I mean that in the best way that they've got going. And I think it works brilliantly with this lyric. Um, it, it's just great. It, it It's a great song. It's fun. Well, we have to we have to give Edge his due. I mean that guitar when it, that first opening riff that's just so oceanic mm-hmm. it's it's so monstrous and again lily white just again wonderful soundscape there it's just so shimmery and alive um and edge so powerful and assured it's yeah and then the drums come in and again it's it's big it's big drums but it's not deuce chills drums of the 80s uh just masterful <laughs> job i just i think this and is so, lily white's greatest production absolutely i love uh, it and, and speaking of the drums so i had heard i don't know if you've heard this that they put the drums in a hallway to get yeah. that big sound i don't know if that's true but I right because i yeah because I, I i read that too that that the natural wood sound of windmill 
um, was deadening. And so they had to like they had to wait till after hours that the office would have to leave and they had to put it in this sort of more ambient um, room that was the the higher roofs and stuff. Right, 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 right. By the receptionist desk. Exactly. Yes. There you go. Um, (laughs) Good stuff. Good stuff. stories for boys which again you have um a song i've always liked that song i think the song is a great pop song and again i mean that in the best way yeah i mean it's funny you say that because i actually back in the day at least i never really loved it it always Mm. felt a little slight to me very Mm. dated of the time a little early 80s but um it's funny that but in the lead up to the show i actually was kind of marveling at what a gem it was like in piece of pop songwriting um there's so many hooks it's like uh great dynamics Uh, the chorus ends the rhythm goes to that staccato thing stars for boys ah and then the singular snare hits and then before segueing back into the verse it's like that that stop it's it's like mature songwriting beyond their years it's very it is yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's, I, I think you've hit the point. It's really, it's a very structured song. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, which is great. Um, now, but what the heck is it about? I mean, uh, <laughs> because, you know, yeah. I don't know if you know this. I I always kind of felt it was leaning towards a little bit talking about masturbation. I, I don't think I've ever thought of it that way. I mean, I was looking at it more of um, sort of a series of vignettes um of of being a a kid and things that you do as a kid so i mean i guess you you know you do masturbate as a kid too that would be one of the vignettes but um no i I gotta say i i I, i'm 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 definitely gonna start calling it i'm gonna go off for a vignette now (laughs) i'm I'm definitely adopting that (laughs) off to a vignette ta-ta no but but seriously yeah no i masturbation that's not that's not where I thought, I mean, really, I, I really did think about it um, as these series of things that a kid would enjoy. Um, you're listening to the radio, you're watching the TV. Um, but now that I'm looking at the lyrics, there's a picture book with colored photographs. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. Well, you know, sometimes a donut is just a donut. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, okay. Maybe that's... An, it's a fine pop song. Let's leave it at that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> I love this track. I do um, and, and for all the crap we've given Adam, uh, this is his first kind of vital contribution, and it's a great one. Um, it's the impetus of the track. Uh, it's very Peter Hook, Joy Division. 
Um, but yeah, it, yeah, I'll praise Adam. I this and then Edge comes in. This is it's a wonderful like just little instrumental they, they give. And as I said before, I love this sort of of its age arrogance. Of course, we think if the world just listened to us, we could go far. Of course, like, right. you know, I, I, I love it. Uh, and I love on the tour how this would open the shows and close the shows linked up with 11 o'clock, 11 o'clock TikTok. I, yeah. I, I thought that was really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, kind of to touch on similar points that that you made, I love that strummed bass line. Oh, my gosh. I loved it at the very beginning. It's great. Um, And I do like how, you know, Steve Lillywhite brings in the creaking and the bubbling sound Mm. effects to make it sound like the ocean. Yeah. Um, It's just great. It's just great. I I love that it's included on the record, much like on Cock Dub. It's a vital otherness Mm -hmm. to counterbalance uh, the out of controls, the I, I will follows or right. twilight or uh, another time, another place. It, it's, it's a wonderful counterbalance. It, again, the record would be so much less without it. Um, True. And, and it becomes, yeah. I think something that they becomes a signature that they do, you know, there's the ocean, there's October, um, there's 40. Uh, they do these little s- song snippets um, later in their career as well. And I think this is just the beginning of it. Yeah, and and again, uh, it, this is another song they actually brought back later on Vertigo. Um, clearly, this album and certain parts of this album in particular mean a lot to this band. And I think that's very cool. And a lot of bands end up disowning their early stuff or whatever. I think it's incredibly right. refreshing that they recognize they caught lightning in a bottle here. Uh, it, it's a powerful record and statement of purpose. I love that they love it. I think that's a very cool thing. And then we get to A Day Without Me, um, which it's. I didn't actually know that this was the first single. I always thought that I Will Follow was the first single, but it's A Day Without Me. A Day Without Me was released um, as the single in July of 1980. I, I, um, I didn't know it either. And I, maybe they, they don't want anyone to remember it either because it did nothing. <laughs> it did nothing. That's true. Yeah. And I have to say, I, I don't dislike the song, um, but it's my least favorite song um on the album Uh, to me it kind of serves the same niche as stories for boys but i think that stories for boys is a little bit stronger um in terms of its pop sensibilities um yeah i think if they'd released story for for boys it might have done better it's just yeah it's kind of meh yeah it's the only one that's kind of meh for me well it's not one of my favorites even though they kind of stuck with it for many years they kept playing it um for me um it's hard not to think of this song and not think of um the transformative kind of purchase of the memory man echo unit like Mm -hmm. that's what i think is the most important thing about this song he bought the echo unit and that led to writing this song and then he kind of doubled back and went wow this could really 
flesh out a lot of our other songs. So I, I think that's kind of what comes to mind when, you know, you know, dun, 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 like that right. became kind of a big thing. And again, it's kind of funny because I, I think this another song that came rather late in the process, not last, but it was not an early, early song. And certainly the Memory Man was bought, I think, in 1980. So it mm-hmm. it was something that transformed a lot of the, their songs. Um, you know, it's not one of my favorite songs either. Maybe it's the schizophrenia of the darker subject matter. To me, it's clearly about suicide. Um, but it's juxtaposed with kind of this boppy music. So it kind of feels imbalanced in a way. Right, which I don't, uh, that doesn't necessarily bother me i i don't know maybe i feel the song feels a, a little too forced a little too much like they were trying to have a pop hit i don't know mm, I, I don't know maybe but but talking about those lyrics i mean yes i think it's about death um maybe it's about suicide um certainly it's infamously known um as being about ian curtis's suicide which it can't well, I, be well, i don't think the timeline works <laughs> it doesn't work but yeah. i i think that it was there their people, their representatives that actually came out and said that it was about um, Ian Curtis's suicide. Whether you two were involved in that decision, I don't, I don't know, but mm. it originated from their camp. Um, but mm. that's what the song was about, which is kind of interesting, a little it's, macabre, maybe. I, I actually didn't know that, but it, yeah. it, it definitely doesn't line up. Right. You know, historically, um, uh, you know, I, yeah, I mean, who? I think it's kind of about... I suicide but it could be about mental illness um mm-hmm. but I, I do love the first line starting a landslide in my ego sure. i do like that line but that's about it <laughs> um so then i guess we're moving on to another time another place which i have a feeling we will have more to say about um, right it's a great song it's a great song i don't think people love it as much as as we do because i love it too um mm. it, it's one that's often They're wrong I agree, but it is one that that if one could be off, that's one of them that's that's mentioned. I don't agree. No, I, it's it's really interesting and it's really dark, um, and it's immediate. and And this is one where I think the lyrics are interesting. This is a really old song, uh, which fascinates me. It was on the very very early demos. I think that maybe nineteen seventy nine. You start hearing this song, and the lyrics don't change. Um, so this is one of the times I think that Bono got it right. Um, so those beginning lyrics, bright morning lights, wipe the sleep from another day's eye, turn away from the wall and there's nothing at all being naked and afraid in the open space of my bed. I mean, you're there, Mm -hmm. you know, you're there in the story. And that was something that I've always really liked about this song. throw one back at you i actually the 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 couplet or the the verse i like Mm. that's kind of enigmatic is just as i am i awoke with a tear in my tongue i awoke with a feeling of never before in my sleep i discovered the one but Mm -hmm. she ran with the morning sun so uh, that doubled back to uncock dumb he sure where he says she sleeps beside the one right so what it i've always 
that that's always felt enigmatic to me like who is the one is it ali um is it god is it something other otherly maybe maybe all of the above i don't know but i again i think that you know you have this anxiety about sex anxiety about sexuality that's happening in this song um you know leading to the lyric where there's anxiety about innocence losing out to um adulthood experience um another child has lost the race mm. um you know there, there's just something about this song that to me it always felt that it was so anxiety producing that bono does his first at least recorded version of what what comes known as bongolese i think where he just goes into this scat um and to me it always felt like it was whatever was happening became so overwhelming that you're no longer able to uh communicate uh, no that properly. that that's one of the great moments of the record for yeah. sure um i don't think we knew at the time the significance of what that was or you know how it would play itself out you know spectacularly on the elvis presley in america mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. some sure. others but this is the first real appearance as you say and it is just like you're overtaken by the spirit or something right. you know it's, it's in rapture um uh, you could say he didn't have the lyrics but he clearly was comfortable enough to just open up and say this is all i've got and there's something yeah. brave uh, about that and and it's definitely one of my favorite parts of the record for sure But I, I think this one, yeah, I, I think this one is um, a singer's song. Mm. You know, this is maybe mm. the one where Bono shines the brightest. He's certainly opening up his throat and it's coming out like, you know, he's not mannered. He's not, he doesn't have yeah. the affectation. He's letting whatever the spirit take over. And right. it's, it's, he's, you're, you're hearing something extremely authentic. Yeah. Um, which I think was the main problem. And it's a problem for all of us when we are self-conscious. And so we're so worried about the, the the way people see us that we can't allow ourselves to be authentic. So mm -hmm. we have to grab something else that feels familiar. And here's a moment where he just he's letting his essence, his core come out uh, yeah. in, in, a, in a in a moment of ecstasy. Interesting. I agree. I agree. I know a lot of people would say, you know, yeah, like you just said, you didn't have the lyrics or you're just faking it. But no, I agree with you. It's inarticulate uh, speech of the heart, right? To borrow a phrase from Van Morrison, 100 <laughs> percent. Right. Yeah, I, right. I, I feel strongly about that. Right. Um, it's a great moment. So brings us to Electrico. It does, which I love this song. I I do, too. It's it's it, it is at moments. Uh, in time, definitely my favorite of this record, and it certainly is my favorite live song of this record.
And so I guess I'll just ask it. Um, when did you find out it was essentially about electroshock therapy? I heard that um, during an interview sometime during the war tour. And I was already familiar with the song. And I got to be honest, I wouldn't have gotten that from the lyrics. Um, no, nor I. You know, uh, it's interesting. Certainly, it, it it gives another color to this song. Um, it no. makes the urgency make more sense because the song certainly is that. Um, but yeah, how about you? When did you first hear about that? No, you, you got me beat. I did not know it until he, one of my favorite bootlegs of all time is Croke Park on the Unforgettable Fire Tour. Uh, and I would advise everyone to go listen to that because the version of Electrico on there is like freaking a spiritual uh, onslaught that is just other otherworldly. Yeah. Um, the the end of that song is just you talk about ecstasy. <laughs> um, it's it's overwhelming. Um, yeah, I mean, it's you you mentioned it, there's a jitteriness to it that mm -hmm. that that it, it's more musical because you wouldn't get it from the lyrics. But musically, God bless Edge. I mean, if that guy doesn't have a great ability to just you could just give him an idea and he can translate it to music so well. And 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 this is like a, one of the greatest examples. Again, you don't have to know that it's about it. You can kind of just be told it might be about it, and then you hear it, and then it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, true. You know, there's, true. there's this jitteriness of like the, this idea, this this disturbing image. If you've ever seen the end of One Floor Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you know what ECT is. Right. Uh, it's a horrible thing, and it was something that was extremely common in the psychology uh, industry in right. the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, it's a terrible thing. It's witchcraft. Um, and obviously this is something that, 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 that deeply affected Bono. And I, I know they had someone in the, in the Lipton village, uh, community that had gone through it and he had mm -hmm. visited apparently, um, the friend and, um, yeah, a lot of the sort of improv things that you can catch, you know, I want out like these little echoey things at the end of the song, you, you get, mm. it's, it's not so much the express lyrics, but like there's the improv that you, you hear. It's a, it, this, this feeling of jumping from a height and 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 the liberation get get me out i want to go home like there's all these little improvisations that are kind of magical um, interesting yeah. yeah yeah and you know it, when you first started talking about the song you know you talked about it as a live song right yeah and and i think that i as much as i love the recorded version and i do i have a hard time not thinking about this song as a live song i always associate it with um, their live shows, it becomes so huge. Yeah. Um, and of course, Bono's um, uh, histrionics <laughs> that he he does um, in later uh, tours where the song becomes such a huge set piece. I think that's just a part of this song's story. Um, well, we'll cover this on the war tour, which yeah, of course, yeah. it, it does reach its apex. Yeah, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. No, am I too? Because I, I can't, I can't help myself because it did become such a set piece, um, and and put the very idea of performance into the danger zone, and and we'll we'll get all to that. Yeah. But it was it was by and large via this song, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that just sort of like in the same way that it touches on the manic quality of ECT, it it right. it instills that in Bono the performer, and I think that's kind of fascinating. Yeah, and. Uh, 
But again, we're kind of talking about the manic qualities of the song. I think this song does have one of the more interesting breakdowns. Um, a lot of their songs do in the middle where you have the slower tempo. I really love this one. I love the Tom work that Larry does in it. Yeah. I think it's great. Um, Edge's solo is great. Yeah. Um, just some really good um, musicality going on in this song. And, and another song that they clearly it means something to them. They they played it. They you know on Joshua Tree after leaving it for a while. They played it again. I believe revisited on Vertigo. So it's a song that continues to be referenced. Or mm -hmm. they go back and and say this means something. This could add something to a new set list. You know, I, I again like that that speaks so well to the timeless timelessness of this tune. Agreed. So now why don't we go ahead and look at Shadows and Tall Trees, um, which I think we feel differently about, but I think we both probably agree um, that it didn't age very well, this song. Um, Back to the cold, streets at night Talk to myself about tomorrow You know, it, it is another song, though, that you have to look at it for its transformational qualities. This yeah. was another one of their first songs. It becomes a completely different animal um, uh, with Steve Lillywhite producing it. Um, and I think yeah. what's interesting about this song, if if we're before we get into other aspects of it, um, the the title of the song, it's taken from a chapter in William Golding's book, The Lord of the Flies, right. um, which you know, that book, of course, it, it's all about the themes of lost innocence and savagery, um, what happens to you when you become an adult, um, and also the possibilities of redemption. So that's what the book is about. Um, and I think a lot of boy is about that. I don't necessarily think this song is about that. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> that's which true. Is kind of interesting. <laughs> yes. Um, Although the title itself, Shadows and Tall Trees, I certainly understand why Bono used it. It's a great title. It's cool. And it sings really well. Yeah. Um, so, Well, the early versions and the early demos, it's it's kind of flat and it's kind of like edges playing through kind of like a flanger, I think. And it, it, there's not anything much to it. It's just kind of like a two chord wonder. Um, but it does in the hands of Steve Lillywhite, it does become something else. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's not what I would call one of the better closing tracks in their canon. Mm -hmm. Um, in fact, it's kind of a little bit of a letdown, but I like it on its own. I think it's, it's a nice studio creation. It shows the growth and it did. It, I, I like the evolution of this song. Um, and I, and I like sort of like, um, it's a nice snapshot of daily life in Dublin, you know, yeah, that's, that's what it's really like the, 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 the verse about, um, life through a window, discolored pain, Mrs. Brown's washing is always the same. 
right. walk the street rain tragic comedy i walk home again to the street melody it's the continuum of life you know daily life in dublin i i, I like that life through also think it's kind of like there's nothing kind of like it musically on the rest of the record so it's another one of those like on cut dub and ocean that feels a little bit different and again it, it provides an interesting balance musically uh <clears throat> where it's not just put out 10 rockers um sure again it just it's a it's another splash of color um that shows the depth of the band and again i'm going to give the band credit for having the vision of saying it's not about just, you know, vomiting out, you know, 10 punk rock songs. You know, it, it's, it's, they understood the value of dynamics, depth, um, you know, uh, variation from song to song. Um, this to me, again, is another song. I'm grateful it's there because I think it, it adds another chapter to this big picture that they're painting yeah yeah i i think that's that's right um the one thing that i'll point out you know is this a good closing track um one of the lines in the song which i just have always thought is a great opening question to the larger audience is uh you know, do you feel in me anything redeeming, any worthwhile feeling? I've just always thought that yeah. was a great, great line to have on the last song of your first album. Well, you know, U2 is not your average bear. I mean, very true. You know, it's again, I'm going to say it like this is a band that has an uncommon for its age self awareness of what they want to get across. And it, I keep saying this because you didn't get a sense that they knew just eight months before. Yeah. And they're going to do it on their own terms, which yeah. you can't underestimate. The fact that, and this speaks to your point of it being remarkable, is they're between 18 and 20 years old yeah. when this is recorded. It's it's amazing. I don't, I don't, certainly don't think I could have been that articulate um, at that age. <laughs> yeah. So, Bill, what are your overarching thoughts having heard the album again all these years later? Well, I'm going to agree with you. Boy is one of the greatest debuts of all time. I'd put it up there with Pretender's debut, Joy Division's Unknown Pleasures, Patti Smith's Horses, Velvet Underground and Nico, Hendrix's Are You Experienced, you know, that lot. Mm -hmm. um, but more so, I mean, in relation to their own work, I'd say if Joshua Tree is their most realized and enduring work, Octane Baby might be their career-saving masterpiece of uh, reinvention. I'd say, boy, just might be their most thrilling and live-sounding work. Um, there's not a wasted note on this record. Song after song, 
It's driven by this brilliant kind of resolve and knowledge of exactly who they are. Um, Steve Lillywhite's influence on this record is stronger than any other with this band. Um, But Edge has done the impossible in a world of guitar gunslingers. He's become a guitar hero, mastering minimalism, and in doing so created colors not found in a box of... uh, uh, Crayola crayons and <laughs> and guitarists have been ripping him off for the last four decades and they right. still are and they always right. will um and last i'll just say bono is not the star of boy edge is um that'll come later larry and adam are i would say great benefactors of working with lily white but they have learned a lot here and i think they will be making their mark soon enough sure no absolutely um you know, just from kind of a personal perspective, I mean, boy, it, it's it is one of my favorite albums. Um, and now looking back at it, I'm I'm really left with this feeling of how how brave it was um, and how honest it was. It wasn't talking about the themes that um, are talked about um, uh, in most records. These themes of innocence, of childhood. Um, very unusual. And it certainly didn't jive with what was going on. Um, yeah, uh, for sure. In music at the time, you know, we're, to put it in perspective, we're talking about the beginning of the quote unquote English new wave moment. Um, this is a very dancey time in music. This is kind of about synthesizers. Um, the gloss, the veneer of the surface is kind of what it was about. And boy is definitely not that. Um, So it it just, it wasn't cool. Right. Um, Which is really what I love about it. All right. So let's talk about what, what happened with this, the record. Was it a huge success? Well, it really wasn't a huge success. I mean, uh, you know, I know that you wrote down some, uh, some chart positions, Bill. So why don't you uh, remind me <laughs> of what that was? All right. Was. Well, well, I mean, in in truth, it was it only got to number fifty two in the UK, only sixty three in the US. But it's what we'd call a grower, and it gets on virtually every critic's best of list. I will follow was not a hit, but it definitely got people's attention as kind of like the signature song. And then they hit the road. Um, um, yeah. And what I thought was interesting is they modeled the tour on the tried and true method of you know, pounding the pavement. Right. Um, and at the time, a lot of the newer bands were saying that these long tours were no longer needed. They weren't necessary anymore. Um, they weren't quote unquote cool. Um, but you two at this stage, I mean, they certainly were eager. They were passionate about taking their music to, to the people, (laughs) um, developing that relationship with the folks that would be their fans. Um, and I, I don't know, I think this is really the bud of that U2 fan relationship that grows along with them, um, in their early career. And that also becomes such an important part of their legacy and the overall U2 mythos. You know, and the fact that they were, again, we're going to go back to, this is an Irish band, not, is Bono loved to say, we're not some English band just stopping mm-hmm. through. They wanted to do the hard work, the grunt work. And as you said, uh, you know, this 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 forged this bond, you know, with their audience. They were sleeping on floors. And and while they were not, you know, Black Flag or the Minutemen level, they they did believe in that ethos of, you know, connectivity with their fans on a, a very uh, communal level. Yeah. And and. 
and I think you were talking about this one right before uh, we started to record that this is really where Bono becomes Bono, uh, the beginnings of that, where he becomes the star of U2. Yeah. Well, he's the salesman. Right. Right. <laughs> he's, 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 he is tapping into that it factor that he commands the stage like few others. He, he becomes a, the official contender for the most riveting front man in rock and roll. He's, he's out there to tear down walls, make contact. It's totally fearless. It's open hearted. It's confrontational. Yeah. Yeah. So where do they go from here? We, we, we've had a successful, at least critically successful, not so much commercial successful uh, record. Uh, they've made inroads with America. Uh, where do they go from here, Melody? Well, I think they. the thought was, right, they're primed to go home after the tour and record their sophomore album. Um, you two have been moving from strength to strength since their career begins. And I think that's probably where they thought they were going. However, um, during the last leg of the tour, I had a stop in Portland, Oregon, the very, very famous story that Bono's briefcase uh, with his lyrics in it um, were stolen. And I'm sure that that added fire to a turmoil that seemed to be brewing within the band. Um, maybe some thoughts that you know did the three members who were christians um did living the rock and roll life really jive with being men of faith so all of the stuff that you know we're we're talking about all of the turmoil that was brewing within the band at this time um of course would become the fuel that becomes the record october um all of which we will talk about during our next episode i can't wait yeah. So until then, uh, we will see you at the Into the Heart of YouTube podcast. See you then. Mm-hmm.